The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and in chapter number 5 he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by, into the grace in which we, by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we rejoice in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a, will, a righteous, will a man die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies to God, we were reconciled by the death of his son, much more, having now been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in, in, the, in the glory of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world by one man, and death by sin, and so death spread upon all mankind, for all have sinned. For sin was indeed, was indeed in the world before the law was given, but there is no sin. When there is no law, there is no sin. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign in righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means! How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, those last four verses are our text for this morning. Would you please find in your copy of the scriptures, Romans chapter number 6. Romans is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome that declares for us the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. We're working our way through six divisions of the letter, and we're in that third section that talks about the assurance of the gospel. And it's, it's, it's contained in chapters 5 through chapter number 8. And we've already looked at how we have peace with God, how we have access to God, and that gives us assurance, and how we have joy in God even through times of suffering. We've talked about how we have love from God in chapters 5, verses 6 through 11, how we've been represented before God. First, by Adam, who failed to represent us well, then by Jesus, who is the best representative and perfectly represented us before God. Now we move into chapter 6, and we we continue to think about the assurance of the gospel. We're reminded that we are alive to God. Paul gives a masterful, masterful argument that nothing is going to thwart, nothing is going to thwart God's plan to rescue his children. Christian, you can rest in that reality. Nothing is going to thwart God's plan to rescue you. Unbeliever, you too can have that assurance. You can have freedom from the reign of sin and enjoy the reign of grace in your life if you repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, it ends with the representation that we have before God. First in Adam who failed, then in Christ who succeeded. And then chapter 8, we'll pick up that same thing where it says, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's inserted chapter 6 and chapter 7. Why? Why are chapter 6, or what is the, the purpose of chapter 6 and 7? Look at the end of chapter 5 with me uh, one more time. Uh, chapter 5, verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered, or increased, that the offense might abound, that, the sin, that sin might abound. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So first, if grace is already predetermined to reign in our lives, if grace is going to reign in the lives of those who have been justified by faith, might that not lead to loose living, license in our living? Paul uses, therefore, chapter 6 to address the faulty reasoning, but that faulty reasoning by explaining that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And then in chapter 7, uh, in, well, first of all, in the time period between our first representative Adam and our second representative Christ, the law was given. So Paul uses chapter 7 to deal with the issue of the law. And we'll get to that in the future. So chapter 6 is a response to this idea of grace reigning, ruling in the life of a Christian. Chapter 6 teaches us that the doctrine of God's grace ruling in our lives is all about how sin is subdued and about being dead to sin and alive to God. Would you follow along as I begin reading in Romans chapter 6, verse number 1? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, just like 
as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto God. Being dead to sin provides assurance for Christians that they are no longer under the rule of sin. And being dead to sin is only possible through the death of Christ. Do you remember that you are dead to sin because you remember that Christ died for you? Paul uses a series of four questions in these first three verses. I want us to begin by looking at that third question. It's found in verse number two. It says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We are dead to sin. I want us to think about, first of all, the timing of being dead to sin. So this is the phrase that is the first part of chapter 6 kind of rests on. We are dead to sin. Christian, you died to sin. This is the reality for all who are God's children. This is the reality for all genuine Christians. We died to sin. And it's crucial for us to note the particular timing of being dead to sin. It's crucial because it changes so much of our, our current earthly journey. It changes how we view tomorrow and, and next week and in a year from now. So here's the timing. Paul uses an aorist tense of the verb, to, a past tense. He says, we died to sin. It's a finished act of the past. It's not still happening, that we're, that we're still dying to sin. It's not that we're going to die to sin. Rather, it's already happened. We who have been justified by faith have died to sin. Friends, as you try to make heads or tails of our life here on this earth, one of the great tips, one of the great helps, is for you to remember your status before God. Past, present, and future. And Paul uses that tool here by reminding us of something that happened to, to us in our past. As Christians... We died to sin. We're supposed to be helping one another on to God, right? We understand that's one of our responsibilities as Christ followers. So as we travel this journey together, give counsel to one another. Provoke one another to love and good works. Remind your brothers and sisters in Christ that they have died to sin. Remind them that it already happened. Counsel others with the beautiful reality that if they are in Christ, they died sin. Being dead to sin provides assurance for Christians that, are, that, are, that they are no longer under the rule of sin. And being dead to sin is only possible through the death of Christ. Do you remember that you are dead, that you have died to sin? And do you remember that you are only dead to sin because Christ died in your place? This is the timing of being dead to sin. But Paul makes a big deal about the misunderstanding 
of being dead to sin. He kind of goes on the, the, the side of what does this not mean, right? Now, sometimes we explain what does something mean, and we, we explain this, this, and this, and this. Sometimes it's easy to define what something means by saying what it doesn't mean. So when I tell my kids, hey, mom and I are going to go out and run some errands, what that does not mean is call up all your friends to come on over and have a party. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean it's time to chill out and stop doing chores. It doesn't mean anything like that. It doesn't mean, you know, clear out the freezer of all the Dutch chocolate ice cream. No, save that for when I'm at home. Paul wants to make it clear to us. Being dead to sin, here's what it doesn't mean. James Montgomery Boyce gives four helpful clarifications that I want to pass on to you this morning. First, he says being dead to sin is, does not mean that we no longer want to sin. If we're dead to sin, and we are for in Christ, it does not mean that we no longer, uh, that we don't want to sin any longer, that we don't have that, that temptation. If a hu- somebody, somebody argued for it this way. If a human body is dead, then it can't respond to pain or stimulus of any kind. So can't we logically conclude that if we are dead to sin, that we won't respond to sin? No, we cannot. In other words, a man who is dead to sin is not immune to the poles of sin. Having died to sin is not equivalent to being made immune to sin. In fact, we'll get to it in coming weeks. Verse 11, Paul exhorts us to consider ourselves to be dead to sin. There's, to, to, there's an action to be taken. Any Christian knows that sin's pole is still, uh, uh, is still present with us post-salvation. Secondly, being dead to sin does not mean that we should die to sin, that we should do that right now. You've heard the argument, crucify the old man so that you can live a victorious Christian life. Of course, we should wage war on sin. That's not even debatable. But this idea that we should die to sin puts the onus on man instead of God. God took the action. We died to sin because of God. So it misses the tense the past tense of the verb that Paul's using. Thirdly, being dead to sin does not mean that we are currently dying day by day. Like growing in holiness, yes, but by, not by gradually dying to sin. Again, this, this third misunderstanding takes it as a, as a present action, dying to sin day by day. Paul's not talking about a continual process. He said, you died. You are dead to sin. Another misunderstanding is that being dead to sin does not mean that we can continue in it simply because we have renounced it verbally. So some theologians through history have have chosen this interpretation that we are dead to sin because we said so. We renounced it. Or that we are dead to sin because we have been baptized and we testified in front of the church that we are God's child and therefore sin is not part of us any longer. This idea places the action on us. But Paul emphasizes it that dying to sin is not something that we do or have done, even through renouncing it, but rather that being dead to sin is something that has been done to us. We are dead to sin because of something outside of us. We are dead to sin because of God's work of redemption, not because of our work of renouncing. So Paul's initial question in verse 1 brings it all to a point. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If grace is going to reign in our life, if grace is going to have complete rule in our life, 
then we should just live it up. Live with a, with, we should just sin with abandon. And Paul refutes that idea by saying, God forbid, may it never be by no means. This isn't, if you look in the Greek text, you don't actually see the word God in the Greek text. This isn't a, a literal translation of, of the Greek. It's just a, it's a, it's a, an appropriate and an accurate exclamation. May it never be. God forbid that that should ever happen. Don't trample on what Christ has done for you. Paul says it's inconceivable that we would continue to live in sin precisely because we are dead to sin. So those are some of the ways in which we can misunderstand what Paul is teaching us. Christian, you are dead to sin. You cannot continue to live in the sin that defined your life pre-salvation. There's no merits in the argument to sin more in order for grace to abound. It's a ludicrous thought. It's not even an option because you've already died to sin. But let's jump down to verse number four and consider the purpose of being dead to sin. Paul says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that just like Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So the promise of chapter 5, that grace will now reign in our lives, is now possible because the reign of sin has stopped. The rule of sin is no longer happening in the lives of those who have been justified by faith. That is God's purpose in making us dead to sin. You are no longer under the rule. You are no longer under the reign of sin. The ruling power of sin has been lifted, and now there is, there is a new power at work in your life. Isn't that what we read in Colossians chapter 1? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer present. Having died to sin does not mean that sin has zero influence or pull towards us. But having died to sin does mean that sin can no longer control you. It can no longer dictate to you how you will live. While you may cave to temptation, you don't have to. You don't have to sin. You are not ruled by sin. At this point, having come to faith in Christ, you have another option. So God's purpose in making us dead to sin is right in line with God's purpose of salvation, to save us from sin. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, What is the business of grace? Is it to allow us to continue in sin? No, it is to deliver us from the bondage and the reign of sin, and to put us under the reign of grace. We are united to Christ's death so that we can look like Christ. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Walking in newness of life is completely opposite of continuing in our sin so that grace may abound. Subduing sin. Sin not ruling, but grace ruling. How can we still live in it? 
Paul wants us to understand with absolute clarity that God's grace was given to save us from our sin, not to pave a path for us to continue in our sin. Friends, as you evangelize, this right here, this is the hope of the gospel. As you're explaining to, uh, the gospel to someone, you're explaining that someone offers to break the power, the reign, the undeniable rule of sin in their life. You're explaining that Christ paves the way for grace to reign and not death. Evangelizing is explaining that the power of, of, of drugs or homosexuality or pornography or hate or any kind of other idolatry, those are overcome through the power of the cross. Evangelizing communicates the gospel is the power of God to salvation. When you fight your own temptations to sin, you remind yourself that God has shown you grace to save you from sin's penalty, not to help you enjoy sin's pleasure. So let's teach our kids that God's grace is not to be taken lightly. He's shown grace in order that we might live for His glory. Being dead to sin, it provides assurance for Christians that we are no longer under the rule of sin. And being dead to sin is only possible through the death of Christ. Do you remember that you are dead to sin? Do you remember that you are only dead to sin because Christ died for you? Well, we've considered the timing of being dead to sin, the misunderstanding around being dead to sin, and the purpose that we may walk in newness of life. But we skipped over verse 3, and that's where we'll conclude this morning, the means of being dead to sin. Verse 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? The only way, the only way that we can be dead to sin is that we are united to Christ's death. Paul uses the word baptized to describe that union. To baptize, to immerse, carries the idea of, of pointing out a change that has taken place by some means. There was a, a Greek poet and physician from 200 B.C. That was before most of you were even alive. And he explained it this way. To make a pickle, the, ve the, ve the vegetable has to be first dipped into boiling water and then baptized into the vinegar solution. Both actions include immersing the vegetable in a solution. But the first is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, produces a permanent change. Paul is using this idea of water baptism to teach the spiritual reality of a believer's union with Christ. That's what we have, that's what we have to take from this passage. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God precisely because we have been immersed into Christ's death. We are absolutely united to the death of Jesus. His death was in our place. So all that He accomplished through death is ours. We have been immersed into, baptized into Christ's death. Water baptism is an outward identification of an inward reality, of one's faith in Jesus, and one's faith in Christ's death and His burial and His resurrection. 
How, do, how did we die to sin? Well, how did Jesus die? By paying the penalty of sin. So because we are united to Christ in his death, that old life of sin in Adam, is, it's in the past for us. We can't go back to it. We must not go back to it. We must move forward. That is the only option. The option of continuing in sin has been eliminated. So knowing that, knowing that you can't go back to sin, knowing that you have died to sin, knowing that you've been made alive to God is the vital piece of living a holy life now. John Stott said it this way, a born-again born Christian should no more think of going back to the old life than an adult should think about going back to his childhood or a discharged prisoner to his prison cell. Would you return to your prison cell after you've been released? In chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, we read of how we are united to Christ, our second representative before God. We have been moved from one state to another. So being dead to sin means that we have died to the old life when, when Christ transferred us to the new one. We've been immersed into Christ's death. So water baptism is something that, Christian, that Christ followers do. It's a step of obedience. It's a public statement of identifying with Christ, that we believe that we, we are immersed into Christ's death, that we are united into his death and resurrection. Water baptism is a, is a picture of our union with Christ, buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. Paul says, if you are baptized into Christ Jesus, you won't continue in sin. Christian, don't trample on the cross. Don't treat the death of Christ flippantly. Regard it. Revere it. Being dead to sin is only possible because the penalty of sin has been paid through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. I ask you, do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you trust that what Jesus did at the cross was in your place. If you haven't called on Christ to be your Savior, I encourage you to do that today. I invite you to do that even now. Christian, our assurance comes as we understand and as we practice the reality that we already have died to sin. So take great confidence in the reality of your status with God. Sin no longer rules over you. You don't, in fact, have to yield to the temptation of sin. Parents, remind your kids that they don't, if they are in Christ, if they've called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, that they don't have to, to, to sin, that they instead can walk in, a, in, in, in the newness of life that they have in Christ. Harvest, let's remind each other that we already have died to sin, that we can walk in newness of life today. Being dead to sin provides assurance for Christians that they are no longer under the rule of sin. And being dead to sin is only possible through the death of Christ. Do you remember that you have died to sin? Do you remember that you have died to sin only it's only made possible because Christ has died in your place? Actually, we forget that fairly often, don't we? That's why the Lord gave us an ordinance that we would remember what he has done for us. He told us to come to the table and to take bread and take this cup to remember that he gave himself his body and he shed his blood for us. 
So we're going to do that now. I'm going to ask the men who are serving the elements, if you'll come and take your places at the front.